It's New Comics Day, Wednesday, January 12th, 2016, and you're listening to God and Comics, the show where we avoid purple men with purple lighting cues, but embrace purple vestments. On today's show, Jessica Jones. We talk all about the new show on Netflix and dive deep into the questions of control, morality, and compassion that it raises. You will want to binge listen to this episode simply because I've told you to do so, at least for the next 12 hours. Plus, as always, we'll have our recommendation, this or that, and a whole lot more. I'm Father Jonathan Michikin. I am rector of Church of the Holy Comforter in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. On the line with me today is Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle, where are you? I'm at Church of the Messiah in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And also on the line today is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm in Christ Episcopal Church in Cooperstown, New York. Wonderful. Well, good to see you, and um, and we will have a, a guest joining us a little later on, so uh, we'll have a little fuller conversation, so that'll be wonderful. But first, we have our recommendation. Father Matt, what do you have for us this week? My recommendation this week is... Uh, a comic book series that has been around for a little while. In fact, last year marked its 20th anniversary. And it, it began, it was published by Image Comics uh, around 1995. And it's called Astro City. The writer is Kurt Busiek and the artist is, is Brent Anderson. With always beautiful covers uh, by uh, the, the fantastic Alex Ross. Alex Ross and, and Kurt Busiek worked together on the, the critically acclaimed series Marvels uh, back around the same time. And um, they continued their collaboration together, creating Astro City. If you're familiar with the series Marvels, it was sort of a look at the classic Marvel comic books tales uh, of the 1960s through the eye, well, not just the 1960s, but throughout the last uh, century, through the eyes of, of, of a reporter. And Astro City is sort of in the same vein. It is set in a, a fictional location, a made-up American city um, called Astro City. And it's sort of like New York is in Marvel Comics. It's packed to the brim with superheroes. It, like you can't, You can't turn a corner without running into a battle between two superpowered entities. So a lot of the stories are told from the point of view of people who live in, in Astro City. Uh, sometimes they're just normal folk. Uh, sometimes they are the heroes themselves or their sidekicks or their supervillains. But it's focused on telling human stories in the world of superheroes. And um, it's got a, a huge cast of, of characters, many of which are analogs of, of popular Marvel and, and DC characters. Uh, for instance, there's the Samaritan, who's sort of a Superman-type figure. Uh, he, uh, you know, he has kind of a similar look, similar powers, but uh, a bit different in some ways, but obviously recognizable as a homage to Superman. Um, another clear homage is the Winged Victory, who is 
Wonder Woman type figure. She's a Greco-Roman themed superhero, but she's a bit more ambiguous than 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 Wonder Woman. She's she's uh, she's more overtly political, uh, sort of a radical feminist type character. There is the Jack in the Box, who is sort of more of a street level crime fighter vigilante who is clown themed. He's got all sorts of gadgets and, and things like that. Um, and uh, I, there's the silver agent there. There's, there's any number of, of, of great characters that feel like classic characters. Some of them are more overtly references to, to existing uh, superheroes. Some of them are, are, are more original, um, but all of them are, are, are pretty neat and entertaining characters. Astro City stories sort of, they range the whole time period kind of uh, from when comic books began to today. Um, so that it could, one issue could be set in the 40s while the next is set in the 70s and the next one set today. They can be self-contained stories or they can be longer uh, kind of storylines. Uh, of interest to God and Comics listeners may be the storyline called uh, confessions, which features, he's, he's sort of a clerical themed superhero called the confessor, appropriately enough. He wears black and he's got a large white cross emblazoned on his chest and he has the, the power to, to make people tell the truth. Uh, he, he's sort of a dark Avenger, uh, kind of a Batman trope in a way. And he's got a sidekick called the altar boy <laughs> who is kind of kind of looks like robin uh, obviously a reference to robin but the story confessions is told from the point of view of the sidekick and about you know he comes to astro city he's looking to make a name for himself he becomes the sidekick of this mysterious figure it's a mystery story because there's these murders that happen throughout the city and the superheroes get kind of blamed for it. And it's uh, it's sort of similar to the Marvel Civil War situation. It kind of explores the role of uh, superheroes in a, in a, in a society, in society and, and how people would react to that, how they would, how the government would respond. There's the larger storyline also, the Dark Age, which takes place from the 70s and the and the 80s and is told from the point of view of two brothers one is a cop and one's a petty criminal but it takes place in that time in the 70s where there was lots of dark and gritty uh, more violent <laughs> superheroes so they explore that um, and that was like a 16 issue storyline but many of them are self-contained so you can sort of pick them up uh, and read them just uh, independently and there's many collections out there as well it's been around for a while. It, it, it was it was originally published by Image Comics, um, then Wildstorm, and now it's being published by Vertigo. Um, so there's there's lots of stories to explore in the Astro City series, and I, I I'd recommend any of them really. All right. Well, great. Thank you for that recommendation, Father Matt. Well, we're going to turn now to our main discussion about Jessica Jones, and joining us today for that discussion is Emily Zanotti. Emily is a blogger and columnist for the American Spectator. Her writing on comedy, politics, and culture has appeared in numerous places. She is also a cosplayer and a lifelong comic book enthusiast. 
Emily, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. You are I you were our first guest and you are I believe our first return guest. So <laughs> many milestones have been achieved already. Let's jump right into it because there's so much to talk about. We're going to talk about Jessica Jones, the, the Netflix show. And we realize that some of you may not yet have binged your way through it. So what we're going to do is we're going to start out with no spoilers. We're going to talk about it that way for a little bit. And then at some point we'll switch over to spoilers. But we'll let you know when that is so that if you want to fast forward through, you can, you can do that. So let's start out just going around and giving our first general impressions of the series as a whole. And Father Kyle, since you're the one who has most recently finished watching it, let's start with you. What are your general impressions of the series? Well, I have to say, part of me, after watching the first few episodes, part of me didn't want to like this show for some reason. I think the graphic nature of the show, and as we talked about in our violence episode, I have a little bit of an objection to certain levels of violence, but watched the first few episodes and wasn't sure that I was going to quite like it, and then somewhere about the third episode or so, it really took hold, and I think overall, it's a fantastic series. I I really come to enjoy it. Um, I think the storytelling is great. We'll, we'll discuss some of the other stuff. But overall, that's my general impression, is that, uh, that it's a fantastic show. I went into it really wanting to like it. And, and the first episode, I was a little put off by sort of like the, uh, their sort of graphic sexuality, like right in the beginning. And the first episode's pretty, you know, pretty sexy. And so, you know, I thought at first, I was, I was like, oh, are they going to be really in your face about this sort of thing? I, I, you know, I just sort of let it slide there because I think they wanted to establish in the beginning that this isn't your typical Marvel show, that this is a little more edgy and a little more adult. And, you know, remembering the comic book, the comic book is a little in your face about its adult nature as well. After the first couple episodes or so, it, it really becomes less overtly trying to be like an edgy adult superhero uh, TV show and really just gets down to good storytelling. I don't know if I've, if I've shared this on the program before or not, but when I was a kid and I, I heard about or saw that there was something that was supposed to be adult, it was adult content, I always assumed that meant that it had like math or something like really complicated <laughs> that only adults would understand. And... Uh, <laughs> Boy, was I wrong about that. Anyway, uh, Emily, what are your first impressions? I liked the show. It took me some time to get through the first two or three episodes, and then I kind of stopped for a while because it was really intense, the first few episodes. And uh, I'm glad that I went back to it and ended up finishing it because I just thought it's a spectacular show. I think they did a great job, not just with the story, but I think with the characters. It's the first time I think Marvel has really developed some characters on TV that are a little bit flat in the comics sometimes. I mean, she's kind of there because she's their token uh, wild child a little bit and Marvel adult comics. But I think they did a really great job making her real and relatable and kind of bringing this whole 
idea of mind control and superheroes on a local level. And that's what I really love about these Netflix shows that Marvel does is it's really local. Like they're hyper local. They're in one neighborhood in New York city. Mm -hmm. And it's so neat to see how a superhero would go about their day to day life. Even, even the first episode when it got a little sexy, I was like, you know, I've always wondered how that happens between superheroes and this kind of answered my question. So, <laughs> it was family life education grade 300. <laughs> you know what I'll, I'll say about that too with the, the kind of depiction of, of sexuality on the show. I mean, it's, it's obviously not like, there's not a traditional Christian sex ethic at work in the program, but... Yeah. It's a program about a female hero that is not about how sexy she is, right? Like, that was not the central idea of the show. I, I, I also liked the program a lot. I thought that it was very compelling. I thought that it was very well done, as much as I did with the, the Netflix Daredevil program. I enjoyed uh, the acting and the way that they did the storyline with Kilgrave. I have to say... One thing that I was a little bit disappointed on, um, if you think about it in relation to the comic, and I realize it's not going to be like the comic, right? I mean, any anything they adapt, they're going to have to make decisions about, make changes, make even large-scale deviations. And it's easier to do that with a property like this, where the number of people who've experienced it as a comic is a lot lower than if you're talking about Batman or something. But in the comic she seems like a more rounded character. Like, she's still a badass, and she's still kind of, like, dark, but she has sort of a whimsy to her as well, which, you know, kind of goes with the fact that Brian Michael Bendis is writing that character. Like, that sort of whimsy that he has in a lot of the stuff he writes comes through in her. I missed seeing that in the character on the screen. And also, the detective element of it, I mean they zoomed in on the one storyline related to Kilgrave, and that was really interesting, but it does leave me with a lot of sort of questions about where they're going to go, and of course we'll talk about this a little more in the spoilery uh, portion, but I, I guess I would have liked to have seen maybe a more gradual build. You're really right. What I really could have had out of this a little more was the having the Kilgrave storyline broken up a little bit, I think this was originally slated for a 22-episode show, and it got cut down to 13, so it rammed through a storyline really fast, and I think it became really intense in that respect. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the relationship between uh, Jessica Jones and Luke Cage in, in the show without spoiling anything crucial. Um, what did you all think of, of that, of their chemistry together of the the sort of interaction that they had i thought they had pretty good chemistry i've really connected with them as a couple and rooted for them as a couple i think um jessica jones has really brought luke cage's character back in a lot of ways i'm glad for that because i always thought luke cage was a pretty cool character yeah. now in the comic they were both uh matt murdoch's bodyguards remember those were back in the days when he had the uh, yellow shirt and the uh, silver tiara and bracelets. <laughs> I was like, when he 
was wearing the yellow shirt when we first meet him in my, in uh, in Jessica Jones. He's wearing the yellow shirt, and I was like, yes. Oh <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize that. That's funny. He was. That's, that that was a nice nod to the, I mean, to the original Luke Cage. <laughs> What what do you guys think about while we're on the topic of of different kinds of relationships? What do you guys think about the the friendship between Jessica and Patsy Walker, who I, I assume is is taking the place of of the Carol Danvers um, character in the comic? You um, assume correctly. But uh, what what do you all think of what do you all think of that of their friendship? I thought it was really well scripted. I thought um, it's one of the better relation, like female relationship stories that they've had in com- Well, one of the few female relationships <laughs> they've had in comic books. But it's hard to get a like a relationship story for women that isn't all girly. Let's have do each other's hair and have mm-hmm. a sleepover. <laughs> this is more like where are the limitations of our powers? What can we do? How do we protect ourselves and, and to have this this long-standing relationship going back to when they were children and protecting each other and i i thought it was really well scripted it was probably my favorite interaction on the actual show it is probably the first uh, comic um movie or or screen adaptation i've seen that actually passes the bechdel test yes the bechdel test now explain what that you is before Star Wars The Force Awakens. I think Star Wars also passes the Bechdel test. Ah. This does. What is the Bechdel test? So this is um, Alison Bechdel, who is a, a graphic novelist who wrote Fun Home. She is credited with this, this uh, cultural idea that sometimes is called the Bechdel test, where a way that you can sort of test a TV show or a, a book or any sort of pop culture thing to see whether or not um, you have fully developed... Uh, female characters in it is to ask yourself anywhere in this program do you have two female characters having a conversation with each other that doesn't have anything to do with a man Uh, okay right because you find lots of conversations between two men that has nothing to do with a woman Uh but it's it when, when you start thinking about it it's surprising the number of places where you find female characters who are only essentially there to connect to a story about a male character. You you know what's kind of cool, too, is that Patsy Walker, I think, and and if not the first, was certainly one of the first uh, female Marvel characters to have her own book. Yeah, didn't she actually have a series in the 1950s? Yeah, it goes, it goes it, maybe even before that. It goes way back. <laughs> <laughs> so, and they kind of allude to the, you know, she's like, uh, I, I haven't read the old Patsy Walker comics, but she's kind of like a teen celebrity or something like that. And I um, like Hannah Montana, if you can, if you're familiar with <laughs> Hannah Montana. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. Which raises the question: Why didn't Miley Cyrus play her? On Jessica Jones. Miley Cyrus is too busy like wearing strategically placed balloons on herself. So. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, but they did bring Patsy Walker back into the Marvel universe in like what the seventies or something, and they made her a superhero. Yeah. <laughs> so she's she's Hellcat in the comic. Books. In Charles Soule's um, run of She Hulk recently, she she's a, a pretty important character in that. 
Um, so she she's still around in the Marvel universe. All right, well let's let's move into spoiler territory because we've got some some crazy stuff to to talk about in that range. Although I do want to just before we do that, let let me ask since we've just been talking about both Hellcat and Jessica Jones, um, Emily, which one would be the more fun to cosplay, Jessica Jones or Hellcat? Jessica Jones. Okay. I actually am already planning to do that for uh, Chicago C two E two, which is our Chicago and Entertainment Expo. Isn't isn't it sort of cheating though? Yeah. You basically just need like a leather jacket and you're good to go. That's how I dress most days, actually. <laughs> it's actually my third day cosplay when I'm tired of wearing like corsets and high heel boots and all that kind of stuff. I do something that's comfortable, and mm-hmm. I think it's either Agent Carter or Jessica Jones this year. Well, so we're going to move into spoiler territory. So if you have not made it all the way through Jessica Jones to the end, this would be the point to pause the recording. And if, you, if you're if you still wanting to listen to this or that at the end, we will post on the show page what time you need to fast forward to in order to pick this thing back up again. But for now, here we go with the spoilers. You've been warned. So, well, we can talk maybe a little bit at first about Kilgrave in general what do you all think of of him and and just this whole idea this storyline that's really about control and relates a lot to I think the experience that a lot of people have uh, a lot of women have with with stalking and things like that what 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 are your thoughts on 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 all of that I think they take it's sort of a character from daredevil uh Pat. he's I, I think he appears in, in daredevil issue four or something mm-hmm. in, the, in the stanley uh daredevil and he was i mean let's face he's kind of he was kind of a corny villain the purple man but he always had this kind of element of sexual exploitation to him you know even in the stanley he was like surrounded by beautiful women bendis brought the character back and really played up on that element of the character because it's sort of a reflection of like the, the dark, you know, male id. You know, what would you do if you could, you know, uh, command anyone to do anything? Immediately, the issue of uh, of exploiting women comes up. Kilgrave is fascinating to me because this is a villain who is not. He's not capable of mass control. You know, he's. You don't find it out until a little bit later, but it's you only have so much time and so much proximity, and outside that time and proximity, it wears off. So if you think, what if I had so much power to control people who are within a few hundred feet of me, what would I make them do? And he's just a terrible person. And that comes off later. You know, you could use this power to help somebody. You could control time you can control people's lives you can help them escape things but there's this micro element this community level baddiness about him that he's just a terrible person but what one person could do to make your life a living hell is it's it's fascinating because he's every other comic book villain you run into wants to control the world or it wants to destroy the world or it wants to destroy another world um, this guy just really, really wants to attack women, and that's what he uses his powers to do, and play out some weird mom and dad fantasy that he's got going on. 
And he wants to control the one person particularly whom he was not able to control, which is interesting, too. Um, And even from a a sort of theological point of view, that's interesting, too, that the, the thing that he is able to do with ease and have with ease doesn't satisfy him. And so he becomes obsessed with the thing that he doesn't have easy access to, that he can't uh, grasp easily. Kilgrave also has this colossal sense of entitlement because he's used to getting what he wants when he wants it. Men today, young men, uh, um, don't understand the lines of, uh, of consent. It, you know, it, it's very much a topic of public debate. And it's because they, they feel almost entitled to uh, possess uh, the bodies of women. And so Kilgrave is sort of the same way. He doesn't understand why he can't just take it. Which is part of, I think, he, he's extremely childish mm-hmm. in that regard, right? He's stunted because of what his parents did to him and when they did it to him. And at one point, he makes reference to the fact that he, when he had a tantrum, he threw that iron at his mother's face or pressed the iron on his mother's face so that she's now yeah. scarred on her like under her ear yeah yeah and so in some senses it seems like everything he's doing is a bit of a tantrum he's not getting what he wants in life and so he's acting very childishly and throwing tantrums making people do whatever he wants which is generally to kill themselves because he wants the the joy of that or he wants uh, them gone because they've crossed them He's looking for some satisfaction, too. It's not just, like, I want this need met. It's, I also want you to punish yourself for not providing me with this need. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, I mean, we got to the end, and I was like, if I see one more body part in a blender, I'm going to have to just jump off the roof. Um, but it's, it's, it's kind of that gratuitousness of it. You're going to do something so horrible to yourself because I can make you do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a completely warped sense of entitlement that he's got it's, it goes above and beyond being just bad it's sadistic one of the questions that i've sometimes heard and and uh you all might have heard as well is in regards to the question of evil and the question of sin if why doesn't god why didn't god create a world where he would just make everybody not sin and my feeling is the only type of God who could do that would be a God who was essentially Kilgrave. (laughs) Right? Because the kind of control that you're talking about withers away everything else that is actually at the center of what makes a person a person. And so the structuring that he does of the world around him never satisfies him. Even though he can have anything he wants, it never satisfies him because it doesn't have the kind of dynamic that a a real relationship has. And if what your heart is really longing for is love, that's not something you can compel out of the people around you. And even his own behavior itself is a manifestation of original sin. Mm -hmm. You know, original sin is our desire to be God to control the world around us 
And that's precisely what Kilgrave is acting out at every turn. He's the god of his own little world. But that's never satisfying, right? I mean, that's the that's the sort of ugly side of the devil's temptation mm-hmm. is that you will be like God and yet we never get there and and he never gets there. So let's talk a little bit about one of the more interesting and I don't want to say controversial because I don't think it was particularly a controversial scene, but one of the more interesting scenes in terms of bringing up a, a, a controversial topic, and that is the uh, abortion of Hope's baby. So Hope is this young girl who Kilgrave has put under his spell, done terrible things to. She's become pregnant now with his child while she's in prison she comes to realize it and she starts to pay uh, pay off other prisoners to beat the heck out of her in the hopes that it will cause a spontaneous abortion and eventually uh, Jessica helps her to obtain a medical abortion and then then of course the fetus uh, the remains of the fetus become integral to the ongoing story of how Kilgrave, once he finds out about it, how he um, extends his power. Um, all of which, all of this is pretty horrific. I'm trying to think about what I think about this, in part because I didn't really have a tremendous reaction to it when I saw it, but then as I've been listening to other podcasts since then, people have, have brought this up multiple times, I don't know, quite frankly, how to talk about this from my perspective uh, as a human being and as a Christian without going into these culture war places, which is not really my intention. I'm sure that there are people who listen to this show who have all sorts of different feelings and opinions about the politics of abortion. But just for us as, as, as people and as Christians, what did you think of that scene? What did you think of that story? Do you think it was intended to be connected to the culture wars in some way or was it really just this is this is the thing that makes sense for this story i mean what are your reactions i don't know it was an interesting storyline i over the the course of it they used it to sort of perpetuate an evil i mean they they essentially said like the whole idea of it being treated like it was inhuman and shipped off in a factory box to a laboratory for experiments and then ultimately used to create a serum that allowed Kilgrave to extend his powers. I just thought they had a almost a commentary on the humanity of all of it. Like, Hope was a, a sad character. I mean, just through the whole thing, you know, this young person who's completely blinded and caught up in something, kills her own parents and then kills her child kills herself ultimately it's just another to me it's a chapter and just a really sad existence for her and ultimately the more evil plot line that that ends up talking about humanity just being terrible i wish that i could say that i had some sort of culture war reaction to it um but i didn't feel like it was put in there to make me angry i think it was put in there just to depict how sad and lonely and terrible it was to be caught up in this situation that, well, and Emily, this is why I was so surprised when I've heard other other folks connecting this to this and saying, "Well, this is this is a great example of why we need to have 
um, you know, abortion rights in this country and so on and so forth. And I thought, I don't think they were really aiming to make a statement one way or the other about that. I think they were, I think they were doing something narrative. And yes. in the course of the narrative, it made sense to me. I mean, it made total sense to me why she would really, really not want to have that child. Right. Like, I mean, who wouldn't, you know what I mean? Like I, 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 I completely got that. Yeah, I agree with you. I th I didn't take it as a culture war statement in any way. I think it would just fell within the course of the narrative. While I, you know, personally disagree with the act, um, I think that's just how it was. It was there. I think if anything, it sort of drove home the sort of despair that surrounds the whole thing. I mean, if you've ever, mm -hmm. if you've ever been part of, you know, a crisis pregnancy center, you know, I've worked with moms who have unplanned pregnancies there are a lot of times that sort of feeling that surrounds it as this feeling of desperation or a feeling of the world crashing in on you and I think they use that to kind of drive that home for hope but I agree like I don't see it as a, a, a flag to wave in terms of abortion rights I certainly don't just don't agree with the people who are saying it's it's supposed to be emblematic of abortion rights I mean not there aren't that many people in this world who are going to get pregnant at the hands of a mind-controlling supervillain. <laughs> so I don't think that needs to be written into a law as an exception. Um, <laughs> so to me, it just it doesn't seem to have a lot of political implications. It was just really sad. I it would call yeah, the Kilgrave law. That's right. I would like <laughs> to hear at the next debate when they have all of the various uh, people on the stage <laughs> them ask this question. Would you support so a law? When somebody is impregnated by a mind-controlling supervillain? Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, Actually, I think mind-controlling supervillains should be inserted into every question that gets asked of, <laughs> of politicians. That would be great. The Sheldon Cooper's roommate agreement that, like, in the event that one of us is going to be abducted by aliens, I have this clause and clause of smashers. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the, the the bigger topic that that they're raising with with Hope's baby, and I and and just as an aside, I think it's uh, ironic and possibly intentional that her name's Hope. But yeah. this is about pregnancy produced by rape. This has been the uh, the battleground for many a discussion uh, between pro life and and, and pro choice positions. For me, it's, it's really one of the most complicated ethical issues in the abortion base. It's, in my mind, less black and white than the idea of, of abortion on demand. I, I think perhaps the writers of the show were trying to raise a question about abortion rights because the whole show is basically, uh, you know, about rape. And here, um, you know, this is one of the most uh, tragic consequences of rape is, is um, this unwanted, unplanned pregnancy. I sort of very much understood the desire of, uh, of hope to want to be rid of this pregnancy because, um, you know, here it's almost like being victimized over and over again. Kilgrave continues to have this hold on her. And, and I, I think it's interesting that this fetus becomes the source of Kilgrave's ongoing power. They are definitely trying to make a commentary with that. 
you have a whole ethical thing about experimentation too. I mean, Kilgrave is the way he is because his parents wanted to make him a test subject. And then they tried it on a bunch of other people. And then they tried it on a bunch of other children. And then here this fetus is getting the same treatment from Kilgrave that he essentially got from his parents, which is being as Mm -hmm. the experimentation for a larger, greater power influence. And I think if you look at it too, in the context of where Jessica Jones ends up in, in the, I'm sorry, like IGH and some of these companies that exist inside the Marvel universe, that's essentially what starts civil war because there's experimentation being done on mutants. There's mutants experimenting on mutants. Um, people die and that causes the civil war to start. And so it's, it's a really interesting thing when you think about the ethics of experimentation on the fetus, the ex- the ethics of experimentation on children. There's a whole, um, there's a whole moral question to be discussed in terms of how people are actually used. Because Kilgrave not only consumes his victims, but he also essentially consumes his own child in a yes. in an effort to become more powerful. So there's a really interesting thing to be to be discussed there. Well, and and connected to that idea that you that you're raising, Emily is the general question and notion of how much do we assign the the sins of one person to those they are connected with? How much did the sins of the father get connected to the child, right? So we have to get rid of this child because this child comes from this man who is evil and therefore this child is probably going to be evil or at the very least, remind me of this evil. But that also comes up, I would say, in the series in reverse when Kilgrave is basically conning Jessica into thinking that he's the way he is because his parents did terrible things to him. And they did, you know, to a certain extent they did, but it turns out to not be exactly the story that, that he had told. But, you know, she's ready to sort of take out the parents because the parents are connected to him, so they must be the monsters who made him, right? Uh-huh. So there's this whole this whole idea in two different ways of how does one person's actions in the world affect the way we think about the other people who are connected to that person and and change the way we think about them. The series explores this also through the idea of mind control. Jessica Jones murdered Luke Cage's wife. But, or did she murder her? Or did Kilgrave murder her? Where's the right. responsibility there? Um, you know, Luke Cage can't stand to be with her. He calls her, you know, a piece of garbage, basically, because, <laughs> um, <laughs> because he looks at her and he's reminded of the murder of his wife. And the, the fetus is sort of like uh, Jessica Jones. Um, or it's sort of like these innumerable other uh, individuals who did horrible things and, and have horrible things associated them to, to them, but they're really uh, kill graves. They're not. They're being punished, for, uh, and they have guilt uh, attached to them for things that they had no agency in bringing about. So uh, you know that that's very much the situation with 
with this uh, fetus that's aborted too. Um, he or she becomes another one of Kilgrave's victims. It's interesting yeah. too when you think and you bring in the ancillary characters. Like there's a whole support group for people who have been controlled by him, even in little bit like people who left. Uh, one of the guys left his daughter on the side of a road to take to be Kilgrave's chauffeur. He doesn't consider innocent people, and that's that's sort of the problem. And then you have obviously Jessica Jones's neighbor, who's an addict, and comes to the idea that social work and everything his family has ever done helping humanity is useless because there are bad people in the world. And he ends up realizing that he can help one person and that will make a difference. And so you have the questions of of what small things can end up doing in people's lives and whether there is any utility in being good because there's always the possibility that someone can come along and make you do something bad. And I think Jessica Jones has tried, at least the series has tried to hammer home that people somewhere are intentionally good. They do feel bad when something like this happens to them. They will still feel guilty even if they continue to be controlled or they, they're they never controlled again. Their further life doesn't matter. They will still feel guilty. One thing that they did leave out and probably maybe this was the intentional part is how Hope actually felt after getting rid of the baby. Yeah, you don't see what happens to Hope or, or her emotional state about that because there can't possibly be just a decision where she's like, I have to abort this baby because it's Kilgrave's. There has to be a big difference between, oh, I'm pregnant, this is exciting, and oh my god, this is a terrible person's baby, what do I do? You know, there's a couple of other interesting things on a theological level that took place in this show. One was the fact that, and we, you know, this came out in our conversation about Spider-Man. But it's very clear Jessica Jones is trying desperately to atone for her part in her parents' death. She is working so hard to find a way to assuage that guilt that she carries for being the one that, you know, drug her feet and getting up that morning and and, um, then got into the fight with her brother in the back seat. That seems to be a very common superhero motif. The other thing that really jumped out at me was two instances of of forgiveness there was the instance with the girl who lives upstairs whose brother was murdered and i can't remember her name where there's a moment of forgiveness from her to malcolm the junkie neighbor or junkie slash social worker neighbor that i thought was really powerful and then there was the moment where luke cage forgave jessica and whether that was under kilgrave's control because at that point he was under Kilgrave's control or whether that was genuine but the fact that he as she was carrying that guilt said I forgive you and I will keep saying that I forgive you as long as I need to say it I thought those were really powerful and great examples of of what Christ does for us and two examples of you're pointing to two different kinds of evil that people experience, right? On the one hand, her terrible guilt over what happened to her parents, which of course she didn't do that to her parents, but she knows that some small thing that she did snowballed into this other terrible action. But then on the other hand, you have this action that she took under the control of Kilgrave that she's not really culpable for because she didn't have any control over herself in there. And it makes me think about 
the idea of original sin, the idea of we have both the things that we do that we're culpable for and just this reality of the poisoning of the world that we live in that we're stuck with, you know, <laughs> and that both of those things are things that we that we carry and that we need out from under. And both of those are things that we need forgiveness for, even though we're not directly culpable for all of it. We need forgiveness for all of it, uh-huh. if I'm saying that correctly. No, oh, yeah, you're saying that correctly. Okay. Check me for heresy, everyone. Check me for heresy. <laughs> she also seems to struggle with the idea of mercy, too. She doesn't want to give it to herself, uh-huh. but she's also trying to give up herself for her friends. She doesn't want her friends involved in killing Kilgrave. She doesn't want them involved in pulling him kidnapping him, moving him, following him. She wants to be the one that has to do it because she doesn't, she cares enough about her friends that she's not going to put them in that type of situation. They ultimately try to put themselves in that situation, but she struggles with the idea of having to kill him for a very long time. You know, they kidnap him. They put him in the back of a truck. They try to keep him in a glass cage and they try everything they can until finally she's like, well, I just, I have to do this to save other people. It's just not fair any longer. But that's also an interesting ethical dilemma too, because it talks about how she views killing somebody in light of the fact that she's been instrumental in these other two deaths, what it would take for her to get to the point where she would be able to take Kilgrave's life too. She doesn't take these um, questions on in a vacuum or just somehow decide to murder a bunch of people uh, in order to get her way. And, and that becomes clear when she gets kidnapped herself by the woman who lost, uh, I believe, her mother or her sister in the Avengers. When the Avengers fought the aliens in the very first movie, her mother died in that. She was collateral damage. And so there's this question of worthwhile death and, and justified death and justifiable huh. war that goes through it, too. There's your Avengers spoiler, everyone. <laughs> uh, oh, it's been out for how long now? By the way, uh, Rosebud was the guy's sled, in case anybody is wondering. That's who Rosebud was. Um, and Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. <laughs> so Emily's introduced the big enchilada in, the, uh, in, in this, uh, the uh, killing of Kilgrave at the end. What do you guys think? What do you think of the end? Well... I think Kilgrave needed to die, but um, but I don't think that uh, vigilante justice was the way to go about that. I think that's the question. I, I think Emily's absolutely right. I mean, I think that's the big question that's hanging hanging out there. Is there a time to put away such heinous evil, and then who does it? But going through the show, that guy needed to be gone. You certainly feel relief at the end when the deed is done which is uh do you now do do you really because this is this is what i thought was interesting about it i I actually thought the very end of the show was was one of the most interesting parts she kills him and there is i guess maybe some relief for some people but you know it ends in that amazing way with her getting all of these phone calls for people who want her to help them and and who think of her as a hero now because they've I guess read that she did this thing or or whatever it is and she feels less heroic than ever like you can tell she feels like 
probably as terrible as she ever has at at the very end, um, you know, having gone through and, and having done this. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting way to, to do it. It wasn't just, you know, she didn't just, like, kill him and then say something funny, you know? No, <laughs> Which is no, the way it would have happened in another like thing. Too. Yeah. And I think that that was, that was by design. You know, when Kilgrave murders somebody, you know it. It's There's blood everywhere. But when she killed him, she just did it, and she walked away. I wanted more. I wanted him to suffer, and she didn't. So I, I think it's terrible for me because my conscience was like, I want that man to suffer for everything he's done. And she was like, we're going to do this. We're going to do it as straightforward as possible. And then we're going to walk away and face what we have to face in terms of the justice system. So, Yeah, it was it was surgical. I mean, the whole thing seemed kind of anticlimactic, you know. It did. Um, but you, I, I guess what I mean is the relief comes. Well, I mean, he was about to just continue the awful things that – that he was doing. I don't know. I mean, there didn't seem any way to stop him. There's no doubt in my mind that Kilgrave deserved to die. You know, that he was an awful person and that the world was better for his for his absence. But, uh, you know, I always come back to that quote from Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings, where he says, many that live deserve death and some that died deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. You know, this idea is, you know, we're not the, the giver of, of life and death. And she doesn't take what she does lightly uh, at all. You know, nor should she, because, it, it, you know, someone died. And, and, and that's an awful thing, always an awful thing, no matter who it was. Well, friends, there is a lot more that we could say about the program. I'm sure many of you out there have your own thoughts about Jessica Jones, and we'd love to hear from you and find out what you think of it. Hit us up on social media, why don't you? It's a lot of fun. You can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Comics, or you can tweet at us. We are on Twitter, at Comics. But for now, we are going to turn to our final segment. Uh, and as always, our final segment is This or That. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody. Let's this or that. Huh? Emily, you're, you're able to join us for this or that? Or... Sure. Okay. Um, you know, if you come back for a third time, we'll make you come up with the this or that. That's, I think I that'll... Will. Okay. I will. I promise. <laughs> we probably should have done that this time, actually, but I didn't think of it until just now. But I, but Father Kyle, is, it's his turn, so... Um, All right. Take it away, Father Kyle. Okay. I will give Emily the first one, since she's our guest today. Um, Rolos or Junior Mints? Rolos. End of story. <laughs> <laughs> no love for the Junior Mints? No love. Junior Mints. <laughs> Especially after that Seinfeld episode. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give this one to Father Jonathan. Uh, appropriate, given the day. David Bowie's song, Gene Genie, or Space Oddity? I am not familiar with either one of those uh, works. <laughs> so I am going to go with um, the uh, Remind Me of the Babe song from Labyrinth. That is the correct answer, I believe. 
That is the extent of my David Bowie knowledge. Okay. All right. Father Matt, Power Man or Iron Fist? Oh, Power Man, without a doubt. Let's see. We'll go with, we'll go back to Emily. Jack Nicholson's Joker or Heath Ledger's Joker? Jack Nicholson's Joker. Why do you say that? I don't know. I just feel like it's the right combination between like with Cesar Romero and something that would really creep me out. Jack, I love Heath Ledger's Joker, but it's too good. I like the Joker to have an element of scary clown to him. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. All right, Father Jonathan. So your choice is Deadpool or The Punisher? So my problem is I don't actually like either one of those characters. Um, Probably Deadpool, just because he's more amusing, I suppose. I've never understood the appeal of the Punisher. Um, uh, You know, he always has struck me as like, if Batman was less effective and more of a jerk, he would be the Punisher, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And well, th- I, I think the Punisher is supposed to be a foil for the other heroes, like Spider-Man and Daredevil. Um, I never really saw the attraction of having him as like the hero. He mm-hmm. was always sort of like a, you know, a foil, almost like a villain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's gone through a bunch of different incarnations. Like he certainly had. When you look at the first epi- first issue, he appears in an Amazing Spider-Man. He's a much different character than what he eventually becomes. Maybe if they put him back in the white boots, maybe that would help. Did he um, lose the white boots? I think I th- I don't think they have him in the white boots anymore. I think yeah. they've they've given him some black boots at some point. But they... I see though when I was growing up in Detroit, they well, toward my high school years, there was an issue of the Punisher in which he teamed up with Eminem. Really? Yes. <laughs> I have to say I am interested in reading that, but mostly for Eminem, to be honest. What's it called? Do you know? Uh, it's called The Punisher and Eminem. Yeah. Really? I'm yeah, sure. Really... Oh, it's called Kill You. <laughs> Kill You. Of course it is. Of course it is. <laughs> Father Matt, Daryl Hammond's Colonel Sanders or Norm MacDonald's Colonel Sanders? <laughs> I- I'm not sure I understand the question. <laughs> I guess you don't see many commercials recently. No, no, no. I have no idea what you're asking me. (laughs) So KFC has taken this uh, retro approach with their commercials to uh, have Colonel Sanders be a part of the uh, a part of the KFC world again. And for a while, he was played by Daryl Hammond, the comedian from SNL. And uh, and now he's been taken over by Norm Macdonald. See, I, I, yeah, I have no idea. I was trying to think back to like a Saturday Night Live skit or something. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a fun fact. The church that I go to, um, one of the head priests is Father Matt Foley. <laughs> yes, yes. Is, is he always playing with his signature like, let me <laughs> Is the rectory down by the river? He got to be in the Chris Farley documentary and everything. They grew up together, and when Chris oh, did wow. character, they called him Matt Foley after this guy who's a priest at my local church. That's hilarious. <laughs> he was named after the priest. Yeah, the priest is a is a Matt priest. Father Matt Foley is um a, 
that the Matt Foley character after. Oh, wow. So it's not just a coincidence. It's actually by design. Wow, that's unbelievable. Just so long as he doesn't fall onto the altar and break it into pieces. <laughs> he's never given a homily where he's been like, go live in a van down by the river. <laughs> not yet, anyway. <laughs> Emily, we'll give you another one. It is Funyuns or Doritos. Doritos. Funyuns are gross. <laughs> I any, agree. any particular kind of Doritos? The kind that comes wrapped around a taco. <laughs> <laughs> Father Jonathan, your choice is Indian food or Thai food? Oh, I would go with Indian food. I like Thai food as well, but uh, Indian food is fantastic. Indian food it has the magical ability of looking terrible and somehow tasting very good. Um, so it's got that going for it. It does uh, indeed. Father Kyle, did you miss lunch or something? All these questions <laughs> are about food. I, I'm preparing to go to dinner right now. That's why. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, very last one. We'll ask Father Matt. The Red Hawk or the Green Hulk? Oh, the Green Hulk. Yeah, the Red Hulk. I'm not even that familiar with the Red Hulk. It seems that just to be a kind of novelty. Green Hulk is classic Hulk, you know, that will always live in my heart. Yeah, the Red Hulk was uh, General Thunderbolt Ross when he turned into the Incredible Hulk. So oh, okay. the, Hulk, the Hulk's adversary became a Hulk. Well, that's going to do it for our show today. Um, Emily, thank you for coming on again. You got anything you want to plug? Uh, no, just visit the American Spectator, spectator.org slash blog. Okay, well, there you go. Well, thank you for, for coming on, and uh, as always, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, if you want to check out some of the extras from our show, please visit GodandComics.com. You can give the show another listen while you're there. And we always put up links to a lot of the, the rad stuff that we talk about. So uh, please, please go ahead and check that out. The program is subscribable through iTunes. And while you're at iTunes, if you wouldn't mind giving the show a rating and a review, we would be ever so grateful. It helps other people to find the podcast the theme music for our program which hopefully you are banging your head to right now is by father paul wheatley until next time i'm father jonathan michikin i'm father kyle tomlin i'm father matt stromberg and we'll see you